thank you for joining us for our latest Pediatric Insight Conversation brought to you by the Child Health Advisory Council and Career Physician. My name is Renee Jenkins and my co-moderator is Valerie Opapari. And our conversation today is on fostering healthy cultures. We're pleased to have the following council members join us. Uh, Bruder Stapleton, Christine Gleason, Craig Hillemeyer, Danielle LaRocque Arena, Bob Salwin, Arnold Strauss, along with Wesley Milligan of Career Physician. The health of our workforce in general is the focus of the recent National Academy of Medicine's National Plan for Health Workforce Wellbeing. And it starts with a first priority as a positive work and learning environment and culture. It's a strategy that can reduce burnout and support well-being in an organization. I think that's an important message and that a healthy culture is foundational. We also see the value of a healthy culture because it intersects with a number of the leadership competencies we've identified in our prior conversations. Valerie is going to start out by sharing with you why she and I have found a particular interest in this topic. Renee and I have long-term kind of focus on how you build an organizational culture that can really align with, you know, the values, the aspirations, and the commitment that is really critical amongst all of your team members and your your leadership and your frontline individuals that, you know, deliver the clinical care, that do the research, that do the teaching, how it's incredibly important that you build a culture of respect and understanding and how that culture actually feeds into the success of every organization. So it's it's a topic that we really wanted to talk about, and we're thrilled um, to have our leadership with us here today to kind of expand on what does it really mean to build a healthy culture in an academic medical center or any uh, clinical delivery system. So although we've talked about healthy workforce culture in the past, I think the pandemic engendered a, a greater focus on culture um, because of the impact of an unhealthy culture on our profession. But we're learning more about the attributes, the important attributes of a healthy culture. But it could be helpful to position us by starting with people just going around and giving one word or short phrase um, that captures your definition of a key attribute for a healthy department or, or organizational culture? I think my uh, uh, definition or perspective on a healthy culture is one that is mission-driven and inclusive. I think for me, a healthy culture is one that is calming, that provides a culture of humility and respect, but doesn't add trauma to our lives, if that's at all possible. For me, I think it's compassion. Uh, what your mother taught you. Uh, I certainly agree with the mission concept. Mine was common purpose, Renee. Uh, okay. I think, you know, from from the staff to the faculty to the leadership, is there a, you know, when you when you visit, is there a common purpose? across all, you know, all members of the team. The term that I would use is that it needs to be a value-based culture. And I think the terms that other people have talked about, honesty, integrity, mission-based, are all very much a part of what those values are. 
but I think it's important that you have a value-based culture so that when you have problems, you can go back to, well, what are the values we're really talking about here? What are those important things? So. Mm -hmm. I was going to say um, shared aspirations, but I like the word share because I think that's basically what you're driving to, right? Is that everybody in the organization is committed to a shared sense of purpose. Talking about culture, I think um, it seems like it's more implicit in what we do than explicitly stated very often. But the points that people have brought are ones that are important to the concept. Um, How would you describe the value that you place on a healthy culture in the hierarchy of all the things when you were a leader? Most of us multitask and therefore have a number of principles that must align. And I would say the culture is among the top, but I also want to uh, step back a second because one one phrase that I, I heard in my various leadership positions was, and it was not in a good tone, was that culture eats strategy for lunch. And so, and that's a negative, right? It's a negative on culture, as opposed to the words that you just elicited from us. The culture for me, a sense of calm, a sense of purpose, a sense of coming together, is that you also want to recognize that we all come with different lived experiences, right? And we are our own ecosystem within our family unit, within our community. And then we join the culture of the university or the hospital, the medical school, one for me in my leadership roles is I tend to talk a lot. So I, I tell myself to listen. And so listening sessions. And I try to do very little talking and listening to mm -hmm. understand the values, the culture, the things that were important to the faculty, to the staff, by the way. I never forget the staff because they're the backbone of the institution. And I had an open door policy. I actually like that statement you opened up with, um, negative culture eats strategy, because I think that that's key. When you don't have a positive culture like you described creating in your organization, where you're available, you're interested, you're engaged, you're committed, you, you, know, you want to listen and hear, that, those are all healthy things. But when it's not healthy, it's negative. It doesn't matter how good your strategy is your team is not aligned with you and your, you know, the aspirational goals. So you just can't possibly be successful. One of the challenges with culture, of course, is, you know, how do you measure it? How do you assess it? And I think Danielle's right. The, the only way one can do that really is, is by listening and, and, and asking people. I also wanted to touch a little bit on something that Danielle said, you know, there's a culture within our department, perhaps there's a culture within the institution, a culture within the medical school, as she referenced. And at times those cultures can be dissonant. That's a real challenge as a leader, I think. Um, and maybe one of our greatest responsibilities is to, to be that, that intersection between those cultures and be able to express to the different groups the importance of the culture in the respective groups. That definitely can be an issue. And um, I, I agree wholeheartedly with her though, that because it isn't uh, something that is necessarily visible. You really have to ask people and you really have to understand where they're coming from. You know, that's why I think compassion is is so important is being able to understand or try to put yourself <laughs> in a position where you can understand the other's uh, perspective and, and to acknowledge the importance for them of, of, of compassion. 
I like that negative culture eats strategy. We, we, we might bring that back up again. Um, I think it really uh, points out just how foundational it is. Starting new additions to faculty and staff, you really want to get off on the right step. I'd like to hear about ways in which you onboard new hires in, in a division um, so that they understand the workplace atmosphere that you are working uh, with and ways in which you um, expect them to be treated. And then, of course, the problem is continuing that, um, <laughs> reinforcing it as you go forward. Do you want to start with looking at it from a divisional perspective? You know, I ran a division of neonatology in a couple of um, in a couple of institutions, and neonatology being what it was, I I came to feel, uh, especially in Seattle, that I was actually running a small department, and that actually um, was was helpful in some ways in onboarding new hires because as time went on, I wound up deciding to have associate division chiefs in each of the different areas, you know, clinical affairs, research, education, outreach, and so forth. We, we had uh, every year, uh, we, we would put together an annual report. And each of the associate division chiefs uh, would put together their section and what was important to them. And that was a way that we could, I think, for new hires, faculty coming in, including new faculty leaders in, that, in those particular areas, somebody to run the research uh, portion of the division, et cetera, where we could in some ways um, be sure that we were all on the same page with our mission and our values and the things that all of us have talked about that are important to the culture of the division. And it was very important to me in onboarding new faculty that the division chief, the associate division chiefs were able to mm -hmm. present this and onboard the, the new faculty member or the new leader within the division so that they could hear each other sort of talk, make sure we were really on the same page. So that was a very important way that I think we could begin that sort of onboarding in addition to all the paperwork and all the things that come. And I, I was really reflecting uh, a lot on what you said was the real challenge, which, okay, so now we've had this nice onboarding, all the paperwork, everything's been filled out, you know, and these associate division chiefs have gone, you know, given a nice presentation, filling out our annual report, welcoming the new faculty member. It was really important that we put this together with social events and ways that the division could all get together. Sometimes as we got bigger and bigger, it had to be in smaller groups and where we could then talk about and how we treat each other and how we problem solve and how we handle challenges. And so it doesn't get into these little silos. And I was really reflecting on, on what you said, Bob, which is that what I had as a culture in my division wasn't always the same thing as Seattle Children's Hospital or the Dean of the Medical School or even the Department of Pediatrics. And so I didn't want us to be at odds or to be small groups talking among each other, especially if there was a problem and so forth. And that meant that I had to be everywhere. 
I didn't want to have people in small groups talking about things that were not going well with the department or the medical school or the children's hospital and so forth. So it was management by wandering around. And that meant the staff as well. And I included my division administrator in all of these social events and all these meetings. So sometimes he could hear other things that were going on that might be divisive and cause problems with our culture. I um, learned pretty early and continued to learn that getting people started and making sure that they're welcomed is, is really important. And, and every division did it a little bit differently. But as a department, we developed uh, a process where we ask every faculty member at 30 days to fill out a, a four-question form and review that with their division chief and, and each sign it and send it in. And the questions were, is the job what you expected? Are there uh, things about the, your situation that won't allow you to be successful in your job? And then one of the most important thing was, who's been helpful for you in the transition? And then finally, what is there anything we can do for you to help you uh, at this point getting started? And it was really interesting. The people that were listed as helping with, with the transition were often nurses or ward clerks or people other than faculty. And I had a letter uh, that I sent to each person ever listed as helping thanking them. And this really uh, helped uh, create a community, I think. And then at 90 days, I met with that person personally and went over those same four questions and again, sent letters to anyone. Uh, and so I think recognizing people who are helping people transition, understanding that we do have to help or need to help each other uh, as we get started was really helpful. We uh, did simple things like uh, at the faculty meetings, um, we had quarterly faculty meetings and we, we had the division chief introduced with a bio and a picture to the faculty, every, every new member, and they stood up and people clapped and, and, you know, we tried to make, make our situation as welcoming as possible. So those are some of the things, some of the things we did. I think Chris is a great example of, you know, so much is, is at the grassroots level within divisions in terms of mentoring and helping people, you know, not just saying the clinic's over there, but having clinic mentors to help help people get started. So those are a few of the things that we did. That sounds like a very formal process. Um, I think probably people are probably used to doing things much more informally, but I think formalizing it makes sure you get to everybody. There isn't anybody that sort of gets lost in the shuffle or if that division is not one that's the exemplary division, you still have the larger department umbrella to really help that person. Mm -hmm. um, I also am hearing how important open communication is, that people get feedback um, and they get um, open communication from, from the leader, which also I think sets the standards for a, a healthy culture. At universities, you have faculty onboarding. Uh, some are run by the dean, some are run by the institution, the children's hospital, um, and some divisions have their own, but I, I've just noticed that most of them are very uninspiring and that the college circle may run it. And so the other circles, whether it be department, division, assume, well, they're having orientation, so that'll take care of it, right? But you wind up 
with a lot of uninspired people after a couple of days of orientation. And so I, I think the my, my advice would be to honestly ask yourself, is your orientation inspiring anybody to greatness? And if it's not a resounding, it's a simple question, right? And it's, it's one of those, you'll know it, right? If it is inspiring, you, you know, and the thing I've noticed is the simplest things like having a patient come to orientation and talk about how the organization has impacted their family, having a researcher that you took a chance on 10 years ago, come in and tell their story about how they're now, you know, are funded and a national thought leader. I, I just, I, so it's those simple um, success stories that I see left out all the time because oftentimes um, orientations led by HR and, <laughs> and, you know, they've got things they need to accomplish to comply with all the rules and regs, but so as leaders, right, I, I think that's that's really my suggestion as it relates to onboarding new faculty is the simple question, are you inspiring people? Because that inspiration is going to get you through the tough times later, and we all know they're going to come, right? So I think that's that's a piece. We wanted to know if there's any specific metrics or red flags or things that people have followed to really identify, boy, I've got a problem here. And we wanted to start with you, Wesley, because you have been to countless numbers of institutions and organizations, done so many searches at so many levels. And you know, maybe you could share your perspective of what you've learned about how people measure and assess uh, and use metrics to identify issues with culture or any perspectives you would provide um, on this topic. I mean, to me, it, it goes back to my other, my earlier comment about a common purpose. I mean, when I go in as a executive search professional and I meet with a department or I meet with faculty there, it's the same thing, they're either inspired or they're not. I, I think it's a great metric for me. The things I'm looking for though, are faculty energized? Are they aligned around a purpose? And do they feel like they're contributing to something bigger than themselves or are they focused on themselves are they proud that they're a collegial culture if your faculty aren't even saying they're in a collegial culture then you've got some work to do and then uh, i guess the last thing i would offer is i'm looking to see that leaders are being intentional about their culture most of the time i find that culture is uh culture happens anyway i i think it's got to be something that's intentional because i can't tell you how many times I hear from leadership, we have a great educational culture. And then I talk to the fellows at the, you know, as part of the same visit and they've never even met the chair. You got to be connected. You got to be inspiring and, and you really have to have an aligned purpose. Have you ever seen a culture derail a search? Absolutely. In this business, you're as good as your last search. And as soon as uh, somebody signs a contract, they want to know where their candidates are. They'd never put on the brakes long enough to really do that hard work, right? To really look inwardly and say, how, how are we going to look to the outside world based on who we are? One of the things we talk about is if, if you have, if your culture is not great and you even have to be more strategic about how you recruit. I think two things. Uh, I agree that faculty turnover uh, is a really good measure. I had an experience with a chair who had 10% per year turnover and he thought that was okay. And that's just terrible. 
so faculty turnover is one measure, <laughs> but I think the key is is listening and and going out and and hearing what people say, as as Wesley mentioned, and asking them, and then listening and hearing. Um, listening and hearing go together. I would point out you 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 have to act on what you uh, are told. I think it's really key to go out to not not ask people to come to your office, to go to their office and to listen to them. And those, I think, are really helpful in terms of assessing uh, how the culture is going. And then the last point I would make is I think it's really critical to demonstrate, to act mm -hmm. out the culture. It doesn't do much good to talk about it if you're not doing it. I wanted to back up a little bit and uh, Valerie, your question about culture potentially derailing a recruitment made me wonder what people think about using the recruitment in order to change culture. In other words, if you've got a division or a department that from the leadership's perspective, uh, culture is problematic, is the search an opportunity to bring in someone who can change that culture? And, and if so, you know how, how do you factor that into the recruitment? Because that's uh, certainly a, a, a significant challenge for a new leader to come in and try to change culture. I think that's an absolutely critical point. Uh, yeah, I've seen that and personally had to deal with that. Um, so making change in leadership can oftentimes really change the, the whole ambiance of a group. But, and it's a difficult thing to do, but it's, it can be critical. I'll tag on to what Bob just said. I think um, creating a critical mass of folks, if you bring a new leader, um, and you don't have that critical mass that really wants to move towards a po you know positive sort of energy, it, that is difficult. But my comment was going to be more laid back. One is I want to um, agree with Arnie that going to one's another person's office as opposed to sitting in your office and asking them to come to yours is one way of getting to know that person's world a little bit better, perhaps. I started doing um, uh, walking rounds, which is that we're all stuck in our offices. And in fact, that may determine our mood. And so actually walking throughout the campus and depending on what campus you have, et cetera, I found really relaxing and relaxed the conversation. I found that inviting people to my home was really important. I still remember my fellowship director, David Kornfeld, who invited the fellows and the faculty to his home. And I've never forgotten it because I felt so included. And it's something that I try to do, certainly as a chair and as a division director. It gets harder <laughs> the bigger the group. But I think that's something that says, learn about me and my life. And I'd love to talk with you. And the last point I would say is, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm remembering a particular faculty member that we had a social event, someone mentioned social event, and she was a fabulous dancer, fantastic neonatologist. She was the best dancer and really energized. So there was a camaraderie in that NICU that was incredible, really incredible. And that builds on relationships and people caring about each other even when they get into conflict situations. And if you could get there, then that's that's more than half the battle. Because when people disagree, if they actually still care about each other, they'll find common ground. 
and they'll remind themselves of why they're there, okay, which is to serve and to do good research and to teach all of the things we value. But if they can't link, you know, as human beings, you know, and connect, then that becomes more difficult. Visibility is important when you're a leader and you're trying to manage that cultural message, you ought to be visible so that people's interpretation of your visibility is that you care and you're trying to listen to them, connect with them, um, again, trying to hone in that common purpose that you have. So I've heard that from several people. So that indeed, I think, is a, um, something that we should um, underscore. When you have a large department, division, institution, you clearly are going to have people, I think someone mentioned it, who do the walk about healthy culture well. And then you have people who haven't quite made it. And the question is, how do you strategize to bring everybody on board? Thank you, Renee. I think you phrased the question really well. I think that it, it usually at the division and the clinic site level, it's, it's actually much easier to, be, to sort of understand the issues and usually fact finding and understanding what those people feel is important and how that relates to the mission or the values of that particular unit is, I think, one of the ways to start dealing with that situation. Um, I think, you know, Valerie pointed out that to change leadership is oftentimes a very difficult thing. But if the, if the cultural deficit is big enough, sometimes that needs to be done. Uh, and positive effects aren't just felt in that division. They can be felt throughout the department, the college, the medical school, whatever. And so it's really important to sort of live that dance. One of the more difficult situations, and you know, Arnie and, and Bruder, who had large children's hospitals, can probably um, even comment on this, is that when you get into something like the emergency room, or maybe Bob might have comments about these the surgical, the surgical areas, you've got different components of the organization coming together. And they probably won't necessarily share the same uh, mission or the same agenda at a very tactical level. They Obviously, in the, in the larger sense, they do, but they may have very different ways of going about bringing about what they consider success. And that can be very difficult to deal with, uh, to bring those different groups together and to come up with a situation where you can actually begin to move forward. Um, and there are strategies to do it, but it, and it really is the same, the same concept of understanding what the issues are, what the groups think are important, and how to make them move forwards. I think uh, Valerie made the key point. When there's a uh, lack of culture or a, a negative influence, change has to be made. It's very hard. Making those decisions is very hard, especially if it's someone that hired or worked with, but um, it, it just spreads the negativity spreads and you have to stop that so i think changing leadership at the divisional level or at a programmatic level uh, sometimes it just has to happen that sends a message a very important message um, we are about the purpose we are about the mission we are about those values we talked about at the beginning and we will not tolerate anything else and sometimes it's simple like discrimination or not treating everybody the same, but um, sometimes it's very negative, like 
I don't believe in in what you're, say, you're saying to me, Dr. Strauss. Um, and you, you just have to change that. So I've made some of those difficult decisions and glad I did. Does the a healthy culture play any role in helping you to adapt to some of the external forces that we face on a day-to-day -day basis? When we talked earlier, I'm really concerned about the unwinding of Medicaid, um, what's going to happen when the uh, emergency um, provisions that have helped people with funding and onboarding people for care. I think it's going to be really difficult for people if they don't have a healthy culture that they can um, pivot on the things that are going to change. I thought a little bit more about the pandemic and how we really got to see institutions that really had a healthy culture be able to really adapt the um, workforce issues that challenge them um, and the staffing issues that challenge them in terms of being successful in terms of um, having their patients um, attended to. I am on the board of an organization that I think just demonstrated to the, the maximum of how strong their culture was in terms of the people that would had common purpose and the people who were willing to adapt and make changes and accept new roles based on the need to do it uh, with what they were being faced. So um, I think I've observed in that how a healthy culture makes those adaptations. A recent decision, which a number of us are tackling, is the Dobbs decision with respect to reproductive rights. And I think what I've heard from my colleagues who think about the health of women, suppose 50%, 51% of our population, is how that will affect their health, not only reproductive health, but the health overall. And how do we adapt to these external forces and come together in uh, our role as healers, our role as scientists, our role as educators. So I think that uh, a strong culture, despite perhaps some differences in perspectives, can keep a focus on what's important, which is obviously service to individuals and service to families and service to communities. And so I think talking about those issues together and how they will challenge our profession in giving care and being healers is going to be a testament to whether or not our culture is strong. Well, I was, I was thinking about what you had said about does having a culture, is it an advantage in dealing with external, you know, either emergencies or external changes and things like that? And while this is on a, on a much smaller level, you know, I was thinking about like in neonatology, all the changes that came about over the last couple of decades in the workforce, both the, you know, trainees, the work hours, you know, and things like that, that meant that neonatologists who were academic neonatologists who were, you know, doing 10 weeks of attending in the NICU and the rest of their time with research and, and other educational things really suddenly had to uh, and external uh, competitive forces um, with NICUs being very profitable and so forth. So all sorts of private institutions going in-house neonatology 24-7, where it used to be called from home. These were all major 
changes within the divisions of neonatology, most of which were external, but some and somewhat internal, just you know, all the workforce things. And it was very helpful in trying to navigate those changes, where in, in both the institutions that I was at, we were focused on providing the best possible care mm -hmm. to all neonates, all pregnancies, the outcomes of the pregnancy, how would you want your preemie to be cared for? Sort of putting aside all the things about work-life balance and how are we gonna get enough people to come in and provide all this care? Where are we gonna get nurse, you know, nurse practitioners to help augment the service? And so it was so important that we had this fundamental mission that really drove how we were able including, you know, there was a fair amount of angst over how we were going to be able to do this as academic neonatologists, where in the past we had our fellows, we had nurses, and, and we weren't in-house. So that's, that was how I thought the culture that we had established, that we kept trying to maintain, was really an advantage for us in navigating those incredible external changes that we're still adapting to um, in neonatology. You know, you describe very well the compassion for your patients, but I suspect in that culture was also a compassion for each other. And how can I step in to help my, you know, successful young investigators maybe not take as much of the burden as I'm willing to take and so on and so forth? Because I think we've all seen that, um, that people rise to the occasion when Again, you have those shared aspirations, those shared values, and that shared sense of purpose that you want to make everyone be successful. I think that one of the things that's important as leaders is to realize that we have to communicate in a, in a very transparent way. And that sometimes, I think when we talk about the word culture, we say things in, in our own minds that the people that we're talking to aren't really hearing. And so it's really important, I think, to understand that you need to explain what are the things that are important to you when you make these decisions? How do you go about making these decisions? And sometimes I think we use the word culture because we've all lived it so long that we sometimes don't communicate so well. And that's a word that sometimes turns people off. I mean, they think of whiteboards and multi-voting and you know <laughs> brainstorming sessions and things like that. It, it sometimes can get in the way, I think, of the message that we're trying to put out there. So. I want to thank everybody for their contributions. Um, I think we've agreed that institutions and departments that foster healthy cultures are uh, that are supportive of faculty and staff will be much more likely to weather these external changes that are inevitable. And we've had some really good examples of that. Thank you for that. And we've also pointed out that it's a system issue, that it's broad and it's critical to the quality care academic mission. The attributes of a healthy culture are already woven into measures and assessments across the board. They can't be just something that you temporarily do. It has to be something that is a positive value and a core value. I invite those who are listening to uh, go to the website for additional references on fostering healthy cultures, because I'm sure this kind of conversation will continue. The website is careerphysician.com. And I'd like to thank Valerie for sharing the moderator role with me for this conversation. And with that, um, I'll say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>